Xavier, I'd be rich if I had a dollar every time I heard someone say, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about money. They need to be teaching about this stuff in school. Like the power of investing early. Compound interest. That alone would impact lives. Understanding and planning for taxes. Understanding the difference between both good debt and bad debt. Eric, what about all the stuff about money that business owners need to know? What kind of insurance should you be buying? The importance of contributing towards your retirement. They don't teach any of this stuff in school. Y'all sit back, get ready, because we are talking stuff about money they didn't teach you in school that you need to know. Welcome back to the Stuff About Money podcast. I am Eric Garcia, certified financial planner. And unfortunately, my co-host Xavier will not be joining us today. We are having some technical difficulties. I guess this is just the, um, the world that we live in. But that's okay. You don't have to just listen to me for the next 30 minutes because we do have a fantastic guest this morning. So let me go ahead and introduce our guest to you, Philip Blancato. Phil Blancato is the CEO of Ladenburg Asset Management um, with uh, Ladenburg Thalman Asset Management. He's also the uh, chief marketing strategist, Phil, for Advisor Group. Did I get that right? Chief market strategist, but that's okay. It's all Chief market good. strategist. We're close. We're close. I don't want to do Man, marketing. Welcome. I just want to find. I want to find good stuff to buy. <laughs> Man, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Yep. Give us a um, bring us to speed. Who is Phil like Phil Blancato? What do we need to know? And then we're going to jump into the to the episode here. Well, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to uh, kind of a fun background. Mom and dad were Italian immigrants, and if you know history of Italian immigrants, finance and stock market wasn't the first place that an Italian immigrant would go to. So I grew up in a family that was really not impacted by the stock market, wanted to build houses as a kid. That's what I was going to do, not go to college. Uh, and then my dad, as a big believer in education, said, you know, go to college, and if I, you come out of there, you want to want to go build houses, then so be it, but maybe you'll change your mind. Sure enough, I went to a local school in New Jersey, Kane University, and fell in love with the stock market. Here I am 31 years later. I manage about $5 billion on, on a discretionary basis. I advise on half a trillion dollars for the entire advisor group enterprise. I have a track record that goes back 17 years. I'm in, I'm a fairly notable person in that I'm around a frequent guest on major the media outlets like CNBC and Fox Business. And after doing this for 31 years, it's not about the background, the education, simply the experience of seeing so many different markets my hope is I can give you all a little bit of insight as to things I see after doing this for a long time that maybe help you in your investments. So a couple, a couple of things. Next time you're on CNBC or one of those shows and you're giving your background, um, you need to add to that. You know, I get around. I've been on the Stuff About Money podcast, so <laughs> maybe, maybe my goal is to get a shout out on on the national news. So I'll do what I can you, do. I'll see what I can do. I'll work on that. So you and I have something in common. We're both children of immigrants. My parents oh. came from uh, from Cuba. Wow. And same thing, emphasis on education. You're going to go to school. You're going to get a good education. Not only that, what's interesting, and I don't know if you've experienced this, uh, immigrant families tend to um, almost not just emphasize education, but we're going to do whatever we need to do, mortgage the house six times just to make sure that you get educated. Mm-hmm. And understand the value of money in a way that I was fortunate enough to grow up in an environment that was very careful about every single dollar that was made. 
how is spent, the value on cooking at home and cleaning at home and taking care of your priorities first with as best you can, saving as much as you can to put yourself in a situation where you don't look for the next meal or you don't have to worry about the roof over your head. It's the basis of all investments, the understanding yeah. the balance between debt and equity. Uh, that is, is a lot about how I've managed my career. Oh man, this is going to be, I already, this is teeing up to be a, a good show here. So there's two parts of the stuff about money show. All right. The first thing is we want to hear from you. What's something about money that you now know that would have helped you if you would have known 30 years ago? Well, it's really quite simple. You know, when I grew up and I'm probably older than most of your listeners, you know, you'd go to the local bank and you would get a toaster when you opened up your savings account. They'd actually give you a toaster or a pod or a gift or something. And the joke today is because of, of here we are many, many years later with interest rates going from very high to very low, you now have to give them your toaster if you want to open up a, a savings account at the local bank because they don't want your money. And what that means is investing, the basic principles of it come down to this. One, if you can understand risk, and risk simply means what do you as a person perceive the maximum amount of loss you can afford? It's just that simple. So let's assume risk, the R word, is what are you comfortable with? Then add to that time. How much time do you have for your money? So risk plus time. Put them together, it equals reward. So I want you to remember this formula. R plus T equals R. Risk plus time equals reward. And if you understand that the more time you can give, the more risk you're willing to afford, the more reward you're going to get. The less risk you can afford, the less time you have, the less reward you get. So let's put this in a practical sense. Let's say you have young kids and you know you want to send them to college. You open up a 529 plan. You've got options yep. in a 529 plan where maybe you buy very conservative investments. Conservative investments mean low risk but yet you've got the benefit of a long period of time. So you'd have a low R and a long T. What that gets us to is not a lot of reward. So if you understand the stock market has never lost money in any 10-year period, and you're willing to assume more greater risk or more volatility, then if I'm willing to take on more risk because I have more time, I can get a higher reward, effectively maybe paying for your kid's education. Let's use a different analogy. Let's say you and your wife or you and your partner or whatever the case may be, your wife, whatever the base may be, you want to buy a house. And you know you've got, let's just say, the down payment in your account of a 20% down. And you're buying that house in a year. Well, now you've got limited risk because you can't lose that principal in yeah. limited time. Well, that's a very different investing cycle. If you remember this, you'll come to a, th a process where I'm sure, you know, you think about what Eric can do for you and your investments. Let's have buckets of money. This bucket's for my kid's education. Maybe they're younger, long horizons. And by the way, over time your risk and time changes, right? So what, the, what your risk and reward are for when a child is young is different than when they're 14 or 15 and about ready to go to college. So that's the adjustments you make with Eric. Separately, you have your house money. That's a different bucket. Maybe a different risk and reward profile. But here's an important one. Retirement. We all want to retire. Maybe you don't work. Maybe you work for the federal government or, or the local government or police, water, fire, and you're going to get a pension. Great. Wouldn't you like to supplement that by having something separate and aside that you put a little bit of money in take on a lot of risk if you're a younger person, but yeah. over time, you're going to get great reward. So in that aspect, depending on your age, as you get older in life, you assume less risk because you have less time that you're going to start using that money. As you're younger in life, you take more. So in the simplest of form, everybody, and you've probably heard something like this before, risk plus time equals reward. Yeah, I love that. Risk plus time 
equals reward. I, I like to think that time often is one of the most important, well, the two most important components to how much money someone's going to have in the future. Number one is time, right? Because when you have more time, your money has more time to earn. And we, we're going to talk about compounding interest on another show. And then um, the amount that you actually save and put away. Those are the two most important components of how much money you're going to have in For sure. uh, and the I think future. We, we forget sometimes our that investing inevitably has always been a good thing, not a bad thing. Time, to your point, the more time you give it, the more you make. The stock market has only ever gone up. It's actually never gone down if you stretch out the period of time long enough. So let's just let's take any 10-year period. You never lost money. Even in the crisis of 2008, the market made it all back and grinded significantly higher. Even last year in the pandemic, the market lost 54% from peak to trough, but got it all back and grinded higher. That's where the power of time comes in. The bond market really never lost money either. You're always earning your income in a portfolio. But again, it's a measure of time and risk that gets you there. And you know what the one poison pill to this this simple equation is? Emotion. Mm. We get so emotional about our money. Oh my gosh, I can't bear to see it lost. But if you understand that history is your guide to understand the impact Mm-hmm. And you don't get emotional about it. Think of it as a as no different than the shovel in your shed when you're tilling over your garden. It's a tool to help yeah. you produce something, and you can have great success with it. Absolutely. So there's a couple of things that you said that that um, that's super consistent with the things that I talk about with my clients. First, you talk about buckets of money, and I have five pillars of financial security. Number four is save for tomorrow. So when I say save for tomorrow, you know, a lot of times we talk about saving for retirement. Retirement's just part of tomorrow. So I'll talk about your your short-term savings, your mid-term savings, and your long-term savings. Long-term being retirement, that 10 plus years out where you can take more risk. You have more capacity to to weather, you know, up and downs. And then the mm-hmm. short term would be your emergency funds. I'm buying a house in a year. I can't afford right. risk. We don't know what the market's gonna do. And the midterm is somewhere somewhere in between where you have access to money, but you can take more risk on it. Talk to me really quick about uh, risk tolerance. I want to hear your perspective on this. Risk tolerance, you talked about, uh, I wrote it down here, maximum loss. Like, What are you comfortable with, the maximum loss in your portfolio versus risk capacity? Mm-hmm. So I might have low risk tolerance, but I might have high capacity for risk or vice versa. Yeah, and I would put it, it's a great, great way to put it. It's what can you personally sleep at night with, in the simplest of terms. But mm-hmm. factually, mathematically, what should you be willing to accept to get you your maximum reward? And they're two very different things. And that's where the emotion in the middle, they put that big E in between those two balances. Mm-hmm. So I would put it in this way. Any investment that you have more than a 10-year investment horizon, which is a full market cycle, mathematically, you should always be overweight in stock. So if you said to me, I'm 25, 35, 45, maybe even 50 years old, the expectations of retiring at 66, maximum Social Security, that portfolio should be the vast preponderance, if not all of it, in stock. Personally, I'm 54 years old. My entire retirement money, every single dollar of it, is 100% in stocks. Because the return on average of the stock market is doubled out of the bond market. So in that, in fact, more than double. In that context, I am willing to assume, to a little bit technical, a one or two standard deviation event, if the average return of the stock market is 8%, a one standard deviation event is plus 8, minus 8, a two standard deviation eight is plus 16, minus 16, and a three one, remember that old bell curve we did when we were mm-hmm. in school, kind of yeah. that thing? If you're in the yeah. very tails of that curve, it's three standard deviations. It can be a, you know, call it what it is, it's a plus 24, minus 24. And every once in a while, when the extremes like last year. 
So for me, I'm willing to assume a minus 24, a minus 54, uh, like last year, knowing that over time, the median, that line down the middle, yeah. will get me to where I want to be. So if you have 10 years or more, get your emotions out of the way. Go in the stock market, enjoy the ride, enjoy it, and know that you'll do quite well in that idea of making money over time with volatility. But if you've got less than 10, let's assume you're a seven-year cycle. Well, then maybe it's probably a 70-30 mix. It's a five-year cycle. It's probably a 50-50 mix. It's a two-year cycle. It's probably an 80-20 mix. And by the way, we all grew up with this, even you all who are younger, with a bond market that paid us 2 3 4% a year. We've lived in a 40-year bond bull market, meaning we made money in bonds just about every single year. This year, we're going to lose money in bonds. And it's because low interest rates mean that there is going to be volatility in the bond market as well. But it still acts as insurance when things go bad. So if the market yeah. does sell off, it'll act as a buoy to your portfolio. So in yeah. a simple, simple way to put it, get the emotions out of the way. Use facts. Use time. Use data to help you make that decision. Yeah, they say... Um, um, when you when you look at when you look at studies of the market performing compared to you know like just the broad market returns compared to like an individual investor's returns, uh, they tend to underperform the market as a whole because of emotions because emotions do um, get in the way. So the back to this idea of capacity. Capacity is more equivalent to time, right? The more time you have, the more capacity right. for risk you have, and then tolerance is more of like what's going to keep you up at night. Right. Uh, so some people some people might be younger. And might be really nervous about the market, but need to understand that they have more capacity. This is where working with an advisor, with with a qualified advisor or planner, makes a whole lot of sense because for sure, oftentimes sure. we 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 tend to or we should the, the the good advisors take the emotion out of investing. I couldn't um, agree more. And, and I'll I'll throw a bone to all your listeners. Let, let, let's let's have a little fun for a moment. Let's talk about something good. exciting. Okay, I know this you've is, all this isn't exciting. Uh, this, is exciting. this is the boring this is side. This exciting, is the move. Yeah. This is the meat and potatoes, not the dessert of your portfolio. So the meat and potatoes, you work with Eric, you come up with a plan, you have your buckets, you know your risk tolerance is based on those buckets. That's the meat and potatoes. You set it, forget it, you keep contributing, you're going to get to where you want to get to. My own kids' college education, I have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. They're more than paid for, well known being paid for because I invested very aggressively when they were born in their 529. My goal in life was to fund my retirement and fund their education plan so when they got there, I wouldn't have that pressure. But let's talk about dessert. Meat and potatoes out of the way. I know there's this called FOMO, fear of missing out. And it's when you see Tesla, oh my gosh, I don't own it. And maybe you see cryptos. I'm not a fan of crypto, but maybe you see cryptos. Maybe you see GameStop or AMC. And I got, why did I miss out on this massive return? Okay. There's nothing wrong with having a little fun in the market too. You take a 5% of your net worth or even 10% and you put a few dollars and either you work with Eric on or maybe even you run your own account. So you want to go out and trade a stock once in a while because you want to be part of the market action. I'm a big fan of that. I, we all would love it if you understand your finance better, but be very careful. Don't gamble with your money. Don't get to a point where you're taking, you're, you, you, you take risks that you really don't understand. And what we're seeing today more than ever is there's more leverage in the marketplace, people borrowing to invest in stocks. People guessing on stocks that they really don't understand the fundamentals of how much those companies earn. And I get we're in a world of new technology. Maybe you like the biotechs or maybe you like a charging station or a new, a new uh, electric car. I get it. Take a little bit of money and have your dessert. But your yeah. meat and potatoes have to be invested in a way that use the history of the marketplace to take away your emotion. Working with a qualified advisor like Eric that can say, let's build the foundation of your house 
And heck, if you want to throw out a, uh, something fun to make the house look pretty because you're going to do something you really don't need, but you want to take a little bit, okay. That, that's okay. Call that, call that arcade money. That's your arcade money. You know, I like what, that. What, arcade what's, money. What's money that you're willing to lose overnight? I mean, that's sometimes sometimes your arcade money might give you a greater reward than what I'm going to do for it. Like last year, man, it was really hard to to lose last year, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone was a everyone was a, a stock picker. It's amazing. They're so they're good <laughs> at it. And then this year, a little bit of a different story, right? A little, little bit harder. A little dirty uh, so, secret. I mean, we have this old cheesy phrase that says, "When when the, when the tide goes up, all boats raise. So rising tides rise all boats." Yeah. When the Federal Reserve is printing. Hundreds of billions of dollars of money, everything goes up, everything inflates. So we all look yeah. like rock stars. Myself, Eric, and all of us, and all of you who picked the name that, yeah, I went out and bought Caterpillar and it doubled. Your coworker Wait. at the water cooler is, looks like Warren Buffett, right? Yeah, exactly. But just remember the history of the market suggests that you don't get 20, 30% returns every year. You get about eight. And by the way, there's years where you can lose money. You just got to know how to manage that process. Lose less when markets are down, lose less when your portfolio is down you'll make more over the long term. So using your arcade money for a little bit of money, it's okay to take a gamble on your latest idea, but don't do that with your real money because it can hurt if you make profound mistakes so, that are hard to recover from. Here's a quick story that we're going to transition to our education. I mean, this is this has been great. We can keep on this topic, but I want to talk about inflation here. But here's a, here's a fun story. This was back in, I think it was 2011 when the, the fear of the double dip recession. Was it 2011 when they were, mm-hmm. they were thinking about the market was going to drop again? I think the market gave us most of the returns early in 2011. Yep. And then the rest of the year. Yeah. Yep. And then the rest of the year was pretty flat. Okay. Yep. So I had a client who I managed a 401k for, and they, um, they, they closed down the 401k. And then I took over the money directly uh, in, in one of our portfolios. And this was like in March. Or April, so kind of missed out on the the bulk of the market. But this client also, we don't we don't manage money this way anymore. But this client had a couple individual holdings that he wanted me to hold in his portfolio for them. And uh, I think it might have been Tesla. To be honest, this was Tesla in the early days when Tesla was trading like in the the fifties and sixties and seventy dollars a share. Uh, and then like another another exploration oil exploration company, and, and like he did really good that year, like out dramatically outperformed me. So at the end of the year, we're doing a review and and he said, hey, look, I, 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 know I like you, but I don't know if I, you know, my, my picks did a lot better than what you did for me. I said, okay, that that's fair. It's like, I, I think I might just manage my own money. I'm like, oh, all right, well, let's talk about it. I said, remember when we first started working together, you told me the story about 2008. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, remember you said you lost like, I don't know, 70, 75% of your portfolio in 2008? And he goes, yeah, what's that have to do with anything? I said, let's take an average. Let's run an average over the past five years. I think I'm still beating you. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, yeah, that's a fair point. So, so risk, you talk about all these, these, these meme stocks and these speculative uh, investments. That's, that's risk. There could be potential high reward. There could also be potential um, uh, high losses, but the goal here is particularly if you're a long-term investor. And one of my favorite sayings is the stock market rewards those who stay invested. The stock Agreed. market rewards Agreed. those who stay invested. You made a point earlier, and your listeners should know this. The average return for an investor, people who run their own money, is about three mm-hmm. percent. Average return for the stock market is about eight. So obviously, the average investor gets in too late and gets out too late, meaning they, they wait for the rally to get really hot and then they get into the market and they let the market crash before they get out of the market. Oh, Our job is to be not emotional about your money. 
So if we can take away the emotional, and we know that the trick to the market is not timing the market, but time in the market, then over the long term, you're going to have success. And it's yeah. really just that simple. People love real estate. You know, the average average price appreciation of real estate's been since the 20s, about the rate of inflation, slightly higher. Okay, yeah. maybe you've got the best location and you get a little bit more, or maybe you own a bunch yeah. of houses and you make some income. That's a little different. But in general, your house is a decent anchor. Where can you make the most money, the more, have the greatest liquidity, have the greatest return over time, access to your money, let your money work for you every single day? Yeah. It's the stock market and the bond market. Yeah, liquidity. I have a lot of small business owners, and I tell them, look, you could probably make more money investing in your business, but there's a lot of risk and you have no liquidity. Yeah, so what, exactly. what I'm able to do for you is start to move, build your net worth in a liquid asset that's going to provide cash flow for you for a very, 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 very long time. All right, let's change Let's change uh, topics here. You said it a couple different times, inflation, inflation, inflation. That's the buzzword these days. It's kind of always been kind of in the background. You know, we see like the CPI index, things get more expensive, but like we really haven't paid much attention to it until more recently. So teach us here, Phil, take us to school. What is inflation? And give it to us in the most pedestrian of terms because I'm not a chief market strategist. So, <laughs> so you need I, to help I, me understand this. I use the analogy I used with my, with my kids just recently. You go to the grocery store and let's assume this grocery store has got 50 people in it and there's one pile of bananas and all 50 people want that pile of bananas. The price of those bananas are probably going to go up by two or three times to weed out those who are willing to pay that extra money. The next day, they get a shipment of bananas and now there's a thousand bunches of bananas, but those same 50 people are there. What are they going to do with the price of those bananas to incentivize people to buy those bananas to cut the price of those bananas? Mm-hmm. Inflation is exactly the same thing. The push of demand drives inflation higher, while the pull of costs can drive inflation lower. So let's put it a different way. When I was a kid, uh, when we last time we had real inflation, we haven't had real inflation in a long, long time. Not 6 8%, but I was a kid, we had an energy crisis in the United States where gasoline went skyrocketing and supplies went very low. I literally was selling coffee and donuts in the morning, quarter card of wheelbarrow before school. I was that kid who always liked to make money. Uh, And I remember then learning early on what inflation was. When you have limited supply, things get more expensive, whether it was the real inflationary crisis of the 70s, which at that time we had wage crisis and energy crisis coupled together, pushing inflation to believe it or not. So when you say... When you say limited supply, supply mm-hmm. meaning we, we, we have a limited s- stuff that we're trying to sell. Like we just don't have a lot of it, right? right. So like when the Saints won the Super 70s, Bowl. There wasn't enough gas. We were out of when gas. When the Saints won the Super Bowl in 2009 and immediately were they running commercials, buy this limited edition, you know, <laughs> signed Drew Brees, you know, championship poster, right? Limited, yeah. only, a th- only a hundred of them have been printed, right? right? Limited amount. Higher price. Higher price. Exactly. Supply. Now okay. take so that and okay. apply it to gasoline. Take it to bananas. Take it to wheat. Take it to all the things that have been broken down in the in the in the supply chain issue that I'm sure you've heard so much about. Port, ships having trouble getting in the ports. Countries having trouble making it. We don't make a lot of stuff in this country anymore. We, we a lot. Well, it depends on which sector. We grow a lot of stuff. We don't make a lot of stuff. Uh, so what you have is this result of limited supply. Limited people to push the supply into the marketplace, which then pushed prices higher, which is why you're seeing inflation today. Believe it or not, about 6% average annual increase year over year. But this is very different than what we grew up with, what I grew up with. I'm probably a lot older than most of your listeners. In the 70s and 80s, it was about one, an energy crisis, which eventually got resolved and energy came way back down. And two, 
It was about wages. It was a decade of very low wages, and suddenly the wage of the unions at that time pushed wages up significantly. It was a, a kind of a unified effort to drive wages higher. And the result was inflation running between 8 and 10% a year. And believe it or not, the average U.S. 20-year Treasury paid 18%. The 10-year Treasury paid 15%. Could you imagine going to your bank, and the reason why they gave you a toaster was because they were paying you 15% interest for the money you invest with them. Now, if you go buy a 10-year Treasury, they pay you 1.5. So it's gone from 15 to 1.5, which is representative of decades of inflation coming down. Now, yeah. for the first time in a long time, we have some inflation. But the inflation was caused by a number of things that the pandemic created, coupled with the federal government printing a bunch of dollars. So let's go back to my banana analogy. Gotcha. If you've got $1 in circulation, it's worth a dollar. Mm -hmm. If you then print a bunch more dollars without creating new revenue behind it, then those dollars are worth less because you have more dollars based on the same revenue. revenue. The United supply. States makes $20 trillion a year. If we've got $1, that $1 is going to be worth a dollar. If you take that same revenue of the federal government and then print a bunch more dollars, well, the dollar's worth less in value. And that means those dollars now, you need more of them to buy goods. So that's part one why inflation went higher. Or why oh, let, let, me, let me pause here real quick. So, so we printed more dollars which means the dollar that I have is worth less, not exactly. worthless, but worth less exactly. because there's more dollars out there. So now that it's worth less, uh, the, the, the value has dropped, I'm gonna need more of those dollars to go buy chicken. Exactly. Or I'm gonna exactly. need more of those dollars to go buy gas. Exactly. Right? exactly. That's like inflation 101, right? More, more money that's available, the money that I have is worth less than it was before all that money was printed. Now, oddly enough, in this crisis, the dollar stayed relatively strong because other countries have been just as bad as us. But because all of you were so flush with cash, partially because of federal aid or you just saved a bunch of money during a crisis you couldn't spend, now you know, everyone's got money and they're all chasing limited goods. So the more dollars in the system, which was given out to the consumer, you went to the store to buy a TV, there's less TVs on the shelf because of the supply chain. So you've got two forces now pushing prices higher. One, lots of people wanting stuff, and two, less stuff on the shelves. And that's why we've got this runaway right now, 6%, 8% inflation. But here's the key word. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has said that it's some of the things are permanent and some of the things are transitory, meaning they're going to go back down. And I would agree with that statement. For example, eventually we're going to get the grain markets worked out. We'll get the, the meats market worked out. We'll get the, the lumber market worked out. As we work our way through spending this excess cash, and you hear about the port situation, it's coming down from a really terrible situation to modestly better. We're seeing some of the truck drivers come back to work. Some of the trains begin to work more quickly. Most of the big box retailers say they have enough stuff for Christmas. So the supply chain thing will probably be a, around for at least another six, nine months. You'll hear about it through the summer and into probably the fall, and then it goes back to normal. So if you can go to the store and all the goods you want are there, back to my banana analogy, prices should moderate. And then the amount of money that's been printed by the federal government is also beginning to moderate. That should pull down inflation. But you know the one thing that's going to stick around, and this is a great discussion to have, is wages. wages. Yeah. Now, we could talk about that, but early stage inflation, believe it or not, is a good thing. Inflation is good for all of us. Why? You earn more money. For the first time since the 80s, Wages are going up between 4 to 6%, depending on the industry you work in. Well, we've been clamoring for higher wages for a long time. It's probably a little hotter and faster than we expected. 
But remember, 70% of the U.S. economy is all of us spending money. And if we have so more money to spend, are we it's a good seeing, thing. Are we seeing uh, higher wages across all industries? I know, I know we're starting to see it more like in the service industry. We, 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 we know the stories about, about restaurants and coffee shops. There's labor shortage. So there's less. So we'll go back to our, mm-hmm. our bananas. There's less. There's a labor shortage, meaning there's, there's less people who are willing to work in some of these industries. Therefore, wages have to go up to incentivize them to come work. Is that? That's exactly right. For example, my local coffee shop. I live in Nutley, New Jersey. There's a local coffee shop there. Big sign on one of those pinup boards that says $15 an hour for a cashier at the coffee shop. $15 an hour. That number was eight, I bet, in 2019. So it's a doubling of the amount of money they're willing to pay somebody to, to run a cashier in a coffee shop. So what does that mean? Now you've got push inflation where the average cup of coffee is probably going to go up by 15, 25, 30 cents, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And in that context, some things are going to be pushed to all of us. So we're going to earn more money, but then spend more money on something, specifically goods and services. Some things we're going to have to absorb ourselves, like interest rates, paying more on your mortgage, paying more for your house. Those are more permanent type things when rates grind higher. So inflation can be good in some ways and it can be problematic in others. It's okay if we get 2 3% inflation because we're earning more money. Consumers are our biggest number one thing in the U.S. economy, spending more money. But if it gets too expensive, then two terrible things happen. One, after a while, we get tired of paying more money. Our psyche says, I'm only going to pay so much more up to a certain amount. Gasoline, for example. If you pay less than $4 a gallon for gasoline, generally we don't change our spending habits. When gas goes above 4 it changes almost instantly. The pain at the pump will slow things down. So that means by too much inflation leads us to the R word, recession. Mm -hmm. So the reason why the federal government tries to intervene and manage the rate of inflation by either printing money or or reducing the money supply is that we don't fall into a recession. Early stage inflation where we are right now, it's okay. Is it running hot? Yes. But if it gets too hot for too long, then it becomes very dangerous. All right. So let, let's talk about that real quick. So we talked about what inflation is. It's it's basically there's more money that's out there in the system. Therefore, the dollars that we have are uh, have less value. So then it takes more of those dollars to buy a cup of coffee or to hire someone, to get someone to work. And then exactly. you mentioned the Federal Reserve has a couple, couple tools in their toolkit, some arrows in their quiver to combat inflation because if we get too much inflation it's bad but we also find ourselves kind of a and i find this interesting that and you can you can probably speak to this from a from a, a metric standpoint the economy's doing pretty good right now like like killing we're doing it. we're, we're the, killing the it right doing, now. people are spending more money than they ever have mm-hmm. but yet we all kind of feel kind of it feels bad it just doesn't like everything seems broken, right? You talked about the supply chain. Like one of the coffee shops around me, it, I've gone three times in the past month and it's closed because they, they don't people work in there. So there's a sense of like, things are good, but, but yet they don't feel right. Mm-hmm. So the Fed is looking at this idea that the economy is doing well, right? And for so long, interest rates have been kept really low. That's one of their tools. I want you to explain that. So now they're trying to if they start raising rates, that could have a negative impact on the economy if they raise it too fast. So talk a little bit about that, how the Fed has to walk this tightrope. A couple of things here. People ask me all the time what keeps me up at night. Uh, and I will tell you, first and foremost, it's the Federal Reserve. I applaud the federal government for getting us on the other side of the pandemic. And it looks like now I think we're well on our way to being on the, on the other side. Omicron seems like actually could be a good thing because it could be a way to get antibodies around the world with a very mild cold. But assuming we're on the other side of this thing through vaccinations, through maybe the other side of Delta, whatever the case may be, let's assume by April, May, it's probably over. 
at least to a degree where we're back to, to normal. So the Federal Reserve printed a bunch of money to get us here. So I applaud them for that. A lot of folks say, don't we have too much debt? We actually don't. For every dollar we make, we owe about a dollar right now. If you look at Japan, for every dollar they make, they owe $2. For every dollar Europe makes, they owe about a dollar and a half. We're better than everybody else. But that's we're also the default currency and the largest economy in the world. So we don't want to become like them. We need to stop getting bigger now. Key point, you said something really spot on. The Federal Reserve has been keeping interest rates low by printing dollars and buying their own bonds. This is a really technical thing, but the U.S. Treasury prints a bond, the federal government buys a bond, so that keeps interest rates low because they are the buyer of the government bonds. They take those bonds that they buy and they give it to banks, and that's what puts money into the system. It's a much more complicated than that, but I'm going to yeah. keep it simple. So the federal government not only printed a bunch of money, it kept rates low. Low rates spur borrowing. Low rates means you can go get a mortgage and buy a house for a really expensive interest payment. You can go buy a car and a very low interest payments. I mean, the lowest in history. So by having low interest rates, it allowed corporations to borrow money inexpensively, borrowed us to borrow money expensively. And that's what got the economy going. And Eric, you're spot on right. The economy is roaring right now. We're going to spend $850 billion in the fourth quarter of this year. That's the most in human history on any holiday season. That's the most in the United States. Wow. And that means all that money is going to come rushing into the system in a form of economic growth. It's wonderful. Now the Fed has said, okay, the economy is now standing on its own two feet. We're going to stop buying our own bonds, stop printing money. And every single month, we're going to slow that process down to where it probably looks like between March and May, They'll no longer be the buyer of last resort. They'll no longer print any money. And that means interest rates will start to go back to normal. Normal interest rates should be probably something around 2.25% on the 10-year Treasury, maybe 2.5%. That's a representative of mild inflation that's out there and an economy that's doing okay. It means then the Federal Reserve is going to raise something called the Fed Funds Rate, which is how they keep inflation cooler. Basically, it means if you go to a bank, right now you get zero on your savings account, you're eventually mm -hmm. going to get a quarter of 1%, maybe half of 1%, maybe eventually 2%. And what that does is it raises the cost of borrowing money. You earn more in your savings, but if you go to borrow money, it's going to cost you more, which then slows the borrowing down, which then slows the economy down and keeps inflation in a range. That's mm -hmm. how the Federal Reserve has always worked. That's what they're targeting to do. Now, so far, it hasn't worked recently, and that's why you're seeing 6% inflation when they really want to. But there's still a belief that a lot of that's temporary and will get fixed, as we already discussed. And that's why the Federal Reserve is so important. That's why I keep a close eye on what they do. It's going to affect the stock market. It's going to affect the bond market. And that's where, by the way, if you're managing your own money, this isn't something you probably have a lot of experience with, where Eric and I, this is what we do every day. So we know that in certain environments, we want to have inflation-sensitive securities. In certain environments, we want to have non-inflation-sensitive securities. Last year, non-inflationary. This year and next year, inflationary. That's how it all connects to your portfolio. And by the way, it means for the stock market, we go from double-digit returns to single-digit returns because earnings are going to come down as inflation goes higher and the cost of borrowing goes higher. Just that simple. So that, it becomes harder for the, the DIY investor to pick winners, right? Yeah, because there's other things impacting growth of companies. It's not just full-on economic growth. Now it's cost of borrowing. Interest rates have gone higher. Supply chain costs. Cost of goods have gone higher. How much physical cost can you pass to the consumer? How much that you got to take out of your earnings of the company's profit? Those are the things we're going to be dealing with next year as things go back to normal. I want you in your mind for a minute, picture a grandfather clock. You know that pendulum that swings back and forth? In 2020, the pendulum swung all the way to the left, the really, really bad side of it. 
The economy fell apart. It stalled. We went from making money to losing money. We went from plus 3% growth to minus 6 just overnight. Now, the pendulum has swung all the way back to the right. We're going to have probably 6% GDP growth on average for this year, and it's done really, really well. Well, you know what G GDP, gross domestic product growth, total growth of the country, as we go back to normal, you know what our GDP growth is going to be by the end of next year, this time next year? Two. So the process of that pendulum swinging back and forth, we went from really bad to really wonderful to back to the middle to normal. And normal means normal stock market growth, normal yeah. inflationary growth, normal interest rate growth. And normal means if you're doing it yourself, you've got to be a much better stock picker than just things going higher automatically. Yeah. So what we've seen in the past two years, uh, these, these markets, the pendulum swinging, that does a number on our emotions. Oh, and yeah. We know that, and we know that our, when, when, when we start introducing emotion into investing, uh, it is a recipe for uh, potential disaster. All right. So we've covered a lot of ground here. I want to give yeah. you... So uh, let me just sum everything up. We started off with you saying that you know back in the day, you'd open a bank account and get a toaster. <laughs> so what I'm hearing you say is we're going to go back to those days where I'm going to start getting a toaster again for opening yep. bank accounts. Is that yep. where we're headed? Yep. Maybe not as high as the 80s, but we'll get some money in our savings account finally. Oh, very cool. Man, Phil, any, any last closing? This has been really good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to go back and listen to some of the stuff that you said here. But any last closing thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I'd say, look, First off, we're on the precipice of the greatest technological momentum in the history of the world. If you believe what I said earlier, which risk plus time equals reward, be invested, stay invested. Own a little bit of conservative historical stocks, you know, the big names like the Caterpillars and the John Deere. Own some of the new economy, the Microsofts and, and, and the Amazon, but also be in a diversified portfolio that allows you to mitigate risk, a little less risk by being diversified, be invested in the markets, and do yourself a favor. Get your emotions out of the way. Your money doesn't know you. You don't know your money. Your money doesn't love you. You shouldn't love your money. Let your money be a tool that gets you to your ultimate goal, wherever it may be. And I promise you, if you think about time, Eric made that point earlier, over time you make money, you will have better financial success than you could have ever dreamed of. I wish you all the well. I really do. I hope, I hope you find that success. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Well, y'all, thanks for listening today. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to follow us on your favorite uh, podcast app, uh, Stuff About Money. You can also visit us at stuffaboutmoney.com. We appreciate it. And we have some really cool uh, shows lined up for you coming soon. So be sure to follow us. Phil, thanks again, man. Thanks, everybody. Happy holidays. Take care. Information presented and discussed on the Stuff About Money podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute direct financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial advisor prior to implementing any strategies discussed. Eric Garcia and Xavier Angel's branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor not affiliated with Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated.